0: Hi, and welcome to the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sabolski. Stay tuned for a quick message from our sponsor. In 2016, Dr. Sinksy stated that it took her 32 clicks to document a flu shot in her EMR. That's insane. Technology is supposed to help physicians, and finally one is here that does just that. It's Suki. Meet the AI-powered, voice-enabled, digital assistant for doctors. Doctors that use Suki spend 76% less time on documentation. Health systems get happier doctors, reduce costs, patients get a better experience with doctors that actually take the time to spend with them, and doctors get more patient time, more personal time and way less time as a glorified data entry clerk. Go to get.suki.ai to learn more. That's get.suki.ai to learn more. I'm your host, Matt Zabolski. Two special guests today, Dr. Fred Whiting of the Blunt Scholars Program Director and Assistant Director of the Blunt Scholars Program, Dr. Deborah Keane. Welcome both of you.
1: Hi, Matt. Thanks for having us on. Good Hi, to Matt. have
0: you. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Fred. So I'm gonna start this off. So today's topic is liberal arts, humanities, digital health, medicine, tech, why it matters for training. Uh, Fred, you wanna kick us off here? With some thoughts sure. on the topic.
1: Sure, happy to. Um, I guess I'd begin by uh, a, a quick bit of framing. Uh, one of the things that uh, characterizes conversation about the liberal arts and has, as far as I can tell for the last what, I don't know, centuries. Sometimes it feels that way, but it's certainly several decades, is a kind of conflation between the liberal arts and the humanities, right? So uh, people forget that originally the liberal arts, and here we're talking about a curriculum that arose in one way or another in uh, uh, pagan and Christian antiquity, um, there were originally seven, what, they weren't disciplines as we would ordinarily think of them, but they were topic areas, right? So you had the trivium grammar, rhetoric, and logic, and the quadrivium, astronomy, music, uh, arithmetic, by which the ancients meant algebra, and uh, geometry, by which they meant plane and solid geometry, obviously not Cartesian, which came later, or other kinds of geometries. In any case, um, if you look at those, uh, you know what becomes clear and what is certainly clear in in those things that we've identified as the uh, legacy um, disciplines in the liberal arts um, is that they are not uh, predominantly humanities humanities is part of it but sort of the social sciences Uh, and so the natural sciences right you think of algebra uh, or arithmetic geometry um, astronomy all of these are uh, math heavy uh, and uh, music even uh, when you think about it that way so um, And it's actually remarkable to me when you listen to people in the public sphere speak about uh, a liberal arts education. I'm talking about people that are (laughs) sometimes people that have actually attended liberal arts institutions and are among the most um, uh, ferocious exponents of a liberal arts uh, education. It's odd to me that uh, the liberal arts gets conflated with the humanities as part of the equation, but it's not all of it by any means. Uh, And so that's the first thing that I would like to do is make sure that we understand that when we talk about liberal arts, if we're going to use a disciplinary model of um, thinking about the liberal arts, arts, which I don't think is actually the best way or a complete way of thinking about it. But if we were to just combine it to a a laundry list of disciplines, it would be the disciplines that you find in the average college arts and sciences at a research university, right? So like my own university, you're talking about 24, 25 different disciplines. But among those disciplines, you would number, uh, chemistry, physics, biology, biochemistry, right? Um, non-applied mathematics. All of these would count as part of a liberal arts education. So that's the first thing I want to say.
0: I think the transition here from sort of baseline is, tell us about the Blunt Scholars Program and what you're trying to do for students. And then we'll transition to, why is that important to medicine? Why is that important to tech? Why is that important to digital, the digital future?
1: Uh, okay. Although, uh, so I'm going to let Keen field that one, but I want to stick in one more comment before uh, we let Keane uh, take, that, take that up. And it's this, it's a broader, and the reason I want to do this now is because uh, we're doing a rather more, uh, what I just did is a, a bit more theoretical or abstract stage setting for a more precise conversation that you're interested in, which is the relays between this kind of education and the, the more applied pursuits or local activities and, and job stuff. Okay, so the second thing that I'd like to say is this. Here's another thing that's like completely um, perplexing to me. It's actually not entirely perplexing to me, but it ought to be, it ought to jar us. Um, uh, if you look at the that curriculum that i just described which is the sort of the trivium and the quadrivium these were fundamentally understood liberalis this is what liberal arts comes from those disciplines that were befitting a free person now there's problems with that in the ancient world because free person meant free man (laughs) and these are slave holding societies so there's already a set of historical ironies in play here but nevertheless that freedom is not just uh, one of the things that attends that freedom is it was It was precisely free persons who were responsible for exercising um, uh, political rights, right? So these are the people that are in charge of the state. So um, liberal arts disciplines were eminently practical, right? You study the liberal arts to fit yourself for statecraft, for being a citizen. That was at the core and always has been at the core of the liberal arts and continues to be. Um, So that's the other thing that I want to, I just want to, Uh, throw out as a sort of framing device is it has always been fundamentally the case that the idea of a liberal arts education is practical. Now, it's complicated the ways in which it's practical and what the relation between the practical and the theoretical is there, but I want to get that on the table. All right, so Keen, you're up.
0: So, So Dr. Keen, thank you, Dr. Whiting. Dr. Keen, tell us a little bit about what the goals of the Blunt Scholars Program are with students And then, as I said, let's make a transition to how does that experience create leaders in the various fields that Reed and I, for example, are working in and guests that we have on the show are working in?
2: Okay, well, the first thing to make clear is that the Blend Scholars Program is a couple of things, and it's a living learning community, it's an academic minor, and it has a social aspect and so I think all of those things really work together. So the living learning aspect is that when our students come in in their first year, they all live together in the same dorm. And I should say that, that I think that's a really, really important part of the program. And during that first year, they are taking the same two classes together. And so they're reading all of the same things, which means that since they're living together, they're discussing all of the same things um, constantly in the background, as you well know, because you did the same thing when you were there. And um, and they help each other out in other ways, like, you know, as you know, we have a paper a week and um, they read it, they talk about the ideas, they discuss things with each other. And so I think that informal training is just as important as whatever formal training that we give them. But during that first year curriculum, we have them read about um, 3,000 years of Western thought, basically, um, and we try and give them a wide range of things to think about. And we've divided the courses up into a couple of major, um, I guess, uh, segments, sorry. And um, those segments are knowledge and truth and education. What are all those things mean? What does it mean to, to find knowledge? How do you know that you found truth? How do you get there? Um, The second part is human nature. Do we even have one? What is it? What does that even mean? And then we have to ask that question in order to move on to the next question, which is how do humans create a society together? Because so much of how you create a society is based on people's ideas of human nature. And then in the second half of the course, it becomes, um, and I should say second semester of the course, it turns now into um, the experiment that is America you know, looking at the creation of America, the founding of America, a little bit of the history of America, um, the different voices that are inside America. Have we done what we intended to do? You know, what do we need to change? What could we do better? Are we doing what we should be doing? Now it's 200 years. Should we be doing something different? And so we uh, we walk them through all of those different Uh, Ideas, Having them discuss with one another, having them read these things, having them write about these things. And I think it sets the stage for what they do in the next couple of years. And after that, they take uh, several different seminar classes. They get to choose. We have a very wide range of topics. So in their sophomore and junior years, they're learning all different kinds of things. And then finally in their senior year they come back together again as a group and take their capstone course which sort of mirrors the first co- uh, year course in which they talk about world views you know, how they see the world how other people see the world and they have to do a final project which kind of brings all of their thinking together
0: great fascinating uh, i do remember being part of it for the those listening i was uh, a member of this uh cohort 20 years ago <laughs> And it was a fantastic experience for me and sort of um, set me off on a fantastic trajectory. Uh, I will ask this next question for both of you. How does this training, how does this curriculum create context for these students when they get out into the world and they're tinkering and maybe they're coding or maybe they're uh, building hardware or maybe they're leading a business? Where does this training create context away from this sort of austere world of just code into something more
1: i think i'm going to continue in my impulse and this is of course part of what the liberal arts does one of the things that i would list well one of the one of the characteristics of the liberal arts uh my understanding of it or the way we think about it here in blunt uh isn't sort of to categorize it as uh, just a disciplinary laundry list. Uh, it's rather a set of dispositions which inform the premise of education and comes to inform the people that are the beneficiaries of that education to wit everyone. Um, so what I'm going to do, so here's here's my liberal arts move. I'm going to fool with that question. Um, so rather than say exactly how it will create context, What I, I do think context is uh, both an interesting and uh, a fruitful avenue to explore uh, in this connection. Um, it, it, I'm not sure I'd be uh, inclined to sign on to the, I don't think austere is the right adjective for um, the notion of the tech world or the, I think a better way to think about it would be narrowness versus breadth or um, uh, uh, applied. I think actually applied versus what is called basic, you know, or uh, undifferentiated research is a very good way to think about it. Uh, Uh, So here again, I'm staying a bit more theoretical. Uh, We'll get down in the weeds. But uh, rather than think of, you know, we fast forward two or three millennia from the state of pagan and Christian antiquity that I formally alluded to, and we are now sort of in our present moment. Well, we know a lot more than the ancients did, and consequently, there has been you know a lot of transformations, uh, proliferation of knowledge, and the uh, segmentation of that knowledge into disciplines, which are rather you know uh, a relatively uh, recent phenomenon. You might think about the modern university as emerging somewhere I don't know, beginning of the nineteenth century. It starts to crystallize, at least in the form that we currently know. So. Uh, one of the things to think about is what, uh, and this will get to this issue of context that you raise. What are the if if the liberal arts are best understood not as a, just a list of um, subjects that we study, but rather a set of dispositions? Um, I would identify three sort of principal things that are important to this. The first is just simply curiosity that that the liberal arts are curiosity driven, and a couple of things to say about that. One is um, uh, I don't believe, we tend to approach curiosity as though it's something uh, innate. You kind of dealt a hand at the beginning and you're either curious or you're not. Now, I don't, um, I don't dispute that we might, you know, have different hands at the outset, but I also think it's something that can be fostered, right? It can be cultivated. It's not as though uh, for all of us, objects in the world come with little labels attached with their curiosity quotient. It's rather curiosity is, at least in part, um, the individual who's approaching the world, the the subject matter, whatever, um, uh, leaving themselves open and receptive, and uh, actively um, uh, using their sensibility and their uh, their intellect and their their emotions to process the world. Right. So, so that's one thing that I think is incredibly important to us. Now, oftentimes, I get the edgy uh, the edgy perspective student, or more actually, more commonly, the edgy perspective parent who wants to say. How's the liberal arts going to guarantee my kid a job? And the answer to that is, uh, sir or madam, it's not going to guarantee your kid a job. Nothing's going to guarantee your kid a job. That's what it's like to be a finite creature in a, uh, a changing economy. That's not going to go away. Those ground ground rules will never go away. Uh, now if you want to know how it's going to help them get a job, that's a different matter, but their anxiety is typically, well, wait a minute. If you just leave it up to the sort of serendipity or the fickleness of individual or collective curiosity, as opposed to identifying problems in the world and saying, how do we solve these? What if the, what if your curiosity leads you to produce no knowledge or new knowledge that isn't useful? And the answer to that is, um, you know, people of that mindset think that it's a leap of faith that we're going to, you know, Follow our curiosity and hope that it works out. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's not a leap of faith. It's a leap of uh, historical extrapolation. And if you look at uh, the vast majority of the tools in any applied discipline or any applied pursuit, whether it's tech, whether it's healthcare, whether it's engineering, whether it's medicine, whether it's nursing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the majority of the tools or the majority of the arrows in those those Quivers are developed by people in the liberal arts. The liberal arts pursuit, some curious guy or gal somewhere going, I wonder how that works. That's right. So, so part of it is just we have very, very strong historical uh, evidence that that this kind of uh, free exploration that's just curiosity, just curiosity driven, uh, is incredibly important to the production of new knowledges that will actually have robust traction in the real world. Okay, two other things that I would say uh, characterize uh, a liberal arts education. Uh, One of those is holism. Even the most maniacal practitioner of his or her discipline. uh, And when you descend into it, you you, you start to think that your own discipline. I'm in English, right? So when I'm doing literary and cultural analysis on a text, I think, yeah, this is like the key to all mythologies. This is going to explain everything. But truthfully, I know better. Uh, And I can even think of it in terms of the practice of my own discipline, right? So I want to read Moby Dick to figure out what it tells us uh, about America, okay? Or about the, the culture in which it was produced and initially at least consumed. Well, okay, so I ought to know some stuff that's, typically in the wheelhouse of, uh, of an English professor, which is a formal analysis, some things about how language works. Maybe I need to know some stuff about grammar, et cetera, et cetera. But if that were the only kind of reading that I would do, you'd have a sterile product indeed. But if I knew some stuff about, Oh, I don't know the, uh, this, uh, the class situation in the United States in the 19th century or, uh, uh, sexual and gender norms and how those play out, uh, on the all male enclave of a ship at sea, a man of war or, uh, a whaling ship. Uh, or if I wanted to know something about, or if I had, uh, you know, under my belt, some, um, some set of tools to enable me to do psychological analysis based on the way characters speak to one another, uh, or economic analysis, the kinds of, uh, the kinds of men that went into the, uh, the merchant marine or the whaling fisheries or whatever. You. Okay. You see where this is going, right? Um, all of uh, whatever you do, I can't imagine the job that you would do where you just had to know one thing. Anything that you know outside of whatever the specialization is you need to perform your trade or task uh, will help you be better at it. And sometimes it's not just will help you be better like it's some kind of window dressing. Oftentimes it's like absolutely requisite. You, 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 you've got a chemie degree, you get hired on a, a team that's doing super fun cleanup and they've got to attend to all aspects of what it's going to take to do this Superfund cleanup. Well, you better know some stuff about um, public policy. That's not a part of a chem degree. You ought to know some stuff about maybe gender in the workplace. You might want to know some stuff about race in America, because they'll tell you where the, <laughs> the cleanup fund sites tend to be, where poor folks live and also where people of color live. Right. So now you've got to, you know, you might want to know some stuff about e- economics along with obviously the kinds of skills that you would learn for your, chemie degree. I'm not saying those are irrelevant, obviously. Just So second thing in a, a liberal arts disposition would be holism. And then the third is reflexivity, or the, as they say, psychologists and sometimes people in education call it metacognition. So in addition to performing the tasks that you perform in the liberal arts disciplines, whether it's anthropology or chemistry or biology or literature or history, you're simultaneously doing what you do, looking at whatever you're looking at, studying it with the methodologies at your disposal in your discipline, but you're simultaneously turning the camera back on what it is to be doing those things, right? So the anthropologist say goes to the island in the South Pacific to study a different people and uses the tools that he or she possesses uh, that the discipline has yielded to understand this new culture. Uh, But at the same time, they might ask questions, they might do a version of Heisenberg. What does the, how does the instrument here change the actual phenomena that it's measuring or assessing or whatever uh, so it's simultaneously practice right there's a lot of practice in the liberal arts it's not all theory it's not all basic research but there's also a looking back at the method or the um, the presuppositions uh, with which you meet the world
0: Thank you Fred dr. Keen uh, mentioned that part of this curriculum, Is about creating a society or discovering or researching or reading about what it is to be a society. Part of that curricula is talking about America and the pluralistic experiment that we're all walking in now. How does that training transmute to creating citizens who are active, involved, aware, any other adjective you want to put in there? What kind of product for lack of reducing them to products? are you creating with that curricula why does that student when they walk off campus having absorbed 3000 years of of writing and ideas what adds what what is their add to the society they walk into and the the ripples they create can we talk about that for a moment
2: oh absolutely um I think that it's it goes beyond to the history that we read. I mean, obviously, you can't think about and ponder things that you don't even know exist. And so, part of what this curriculum does is give them snapshots across history. I mean, we read a little bit of Plato, we read a little bit of Adam Smith, we read a little bit of Virginia Woolf. It's like not that they get um, an in-depth view of a lot of these thinkers but that they get enough to know that that thinker exists and is there and has ideas that they can always go back to and look at again. Um, And going back to living learning thing, I would say probably one of the other and more important aspects of the program and this kind of education and kind of thinking is that the students are sharing all their experiences. And so, yes, a lot of our students are from Alabama, but a lot of them aren't. And when we read these readings and talk about these things, a lot of the time they're amazed to find out that students, people their own age, living in other parts of the country have vastly different experiences than they do. And so from a younger age, I think that a lot of people, because you know, some people don't really get out there until they're in their 20s, but um, these students are learning from each other about different places in the United States, how people think there, how they live there, work there, ideas that come from there, and they can share those with each other and discuss them. And I think that's an extremely important aspect of,
0: how they learn and what they learn while they're in the program. So, uh, Reed, you wanted to ask a question here.
1: Well, um, yes, I wanted to ask about Dr. Whiting and Dr. Keen. If maybe you could tell us a little more about the Blunt
0: Scholars Program in regards to how many of your graduates go
1: on to be in the medical field, since our primary focus here is uh, in healthcare. And of that also, are the majority of those graduates still focused on a biology, a chemistry, another, quote, medical major, and they just take the Blunt Scholars program as their minor in that? Thanks. That's a great, great. And um, uh, there's a lot in that question, a lot to answer. So uh, here's a few scattered remarks. the first, okay, so one uh, which is going to be disappointing is, I don't actually at the moment, I could probably check, but it would take me a little while. I don't have uh, sort of hard stats for you in terms of, I don't know, the percentage of our ranks that wind up going to the healthcare care professions, but I think it's substantial. Although it's probably worth mentioning uh, several things that you uh, said, uh, it's worth flushing out. Um, the first thing is that uh, one of the things that the Blunt program for, for for intellectual reasons, as well as other reasons, social reasons, I guess you might say, um, is uh, is fundamentally committed to the idea of diversity. And by diversity, I mean the things that you probably thought I meant when I said that. So, you know, diversity in race and ethnicity, for example, diversity according to uh, gender and, and sexual orientation; these kinds of things. Absolutely, uh, we're also committed to class diversity, which doesn't get uh, talked about much in this country because we <laughs> still delude ourselves that we're a classless society. Uh, but these these are very important things, and um, uh, we pay a lot of attention to them. But the kinds of diversity that I want to talk about in connection with your um, question, Doctor Reed, is um, uh, we're we're committed to. Intellectual diversity and ideological diversity, as well as those other kinds, right? And so, what that means is that we are very careful each year in the class that we admit to make sure we've balanced uh, students' interests in terms of what they might go into or what their major might be. Now, oftentimes, that's not clear, and that's in fact the best kind of student for us: is the student that's got no idea, wants to view college as a kind of uh, petri dish where they, you know, where experimentation uh, takes place. Um, but we have a lot of students that, you know, have some, some uh, presentiment of what they might like to do. And so we try to balance that out. Okay. So um, the second thing you mentioned is that it's a minor, and this is absolutely crucial to the structure of the program. That is, um, we are interested in having Blunt be a minor because we think of it as a a, a vital component of any education, whatever student majors in, whether they major in any of the applied domains, business, or law, pre-law, or, uh, engineering, or what have you, or they major in something that's more traditionally recognized as the liberal arts, whether it's psychology or music or art or history. Um, we want them, the last thing that we want is for them to be in a kind of monoculture of that particular discipline. So we balance out our admissions, uh, because a big part of as anybody that's attended uh I think anybody that's attended university and is honest with themselves, even if it wasn't necessarily a liberal arts institution, unless you were just, you know, in a very specific cosmetology program or something, most people recognize that a big part of your education, speaking for myself, I'd probably say 50% at the undergraduate level of your education comes from um, your, your peers. Just what your your fellow students, both what their ideas are, what they where they've come from, what they know, how how different their perspective and orientation is on the world. Right. So, um, uh, those those two things are incredibly important for us. Um, You know what? Though actually, now fleshing this out, I think I've lost the thread of your. The thrustier, well, okay, as I say, I don't have uh, hard stats for you in terms of the health careers. I will say this, we, we've got what you might expect in terms of there are many students graduating each year that have majored in something like health sciences or maybe chem or biology um, that uh, then go into, uh, apply to med school, for example, or work in uh, some other aspect of the uh, healthcare professions but we also have students that major in other things and do that as well so it's not uncommon you know one of the things we make very clear to students is that your major the correlation between your major and what you do for grad school or what you do for a job is not nearly as robust as everybody wants to make out the people in admissions at colleges and universities want to say that this is so because they take the you know a short path to recruiting and it's m- much more easy to come up with a, f- a fast and simple instrumental logic about career preparation and that's what your college is about it's just it's cleaner and easier to do unfortunately it's not nearly as accurate or as uh, adequate a representation of things in the world as uh, a more complicated uh account of this so we will have students every year that might major in anthropology or with some emphasis on medical anthropology, or they might major in music, but nevertheless, they get their uh, prerequisites in, uh, in the sciences to be viable candidates uh, in medical school. So I don't know, does that get, it, does it get at your... Um... Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm going to end with a final question for you both. Um, every time we have a show, we try to get people to have sort of like the last word, you know, um, and I want you both to think for a moment Uh, Our our listener base is we have clinicians, we have entrepreneurs, we have business people, we have CEOs, uh, we've got venture capitalists. Um, We've got it all listening to this. Uh, They are centered throughout the world. In the United States, we have a great amount of listeners from Boston, San Francisco, D.C., Austin, Texas, Um, the centers where creative business and creative tech is happening If you knew that they were in front of you right now, because I guess effectively they kind of are, what would you tell them about the value of liberal arts and humanities and a closing statement and the application to their everyday in the tech world and the healthcare world?
2: The the funny thing is, I think a lot of them understand some of this already. Um, They probably know more than anyone does right now that what you go to college for is probably not what you're going to be doing 10 years from now and 20 years from now and 30 years from now. And the world isn't like it was, you know, back when you graduated from college, you got your job, you stayed in that job for 40 years, and then you got your watch and you retired. Um, Now, everybody is moving around and changing. And the the majors that they got don't necessarily really have a one-to-one correlation with what they do. And so once again, I'm just going to go back to the idea that having a liberal arts education having a bit broader education kind of helps you understand and see what possibilities are out there um helps you to be able to think outside maybe necessarily a more narrow lane than you, than you normally would and i don't think you know, a lot of people talk about this idea of soft skills um, that come with the liberal arts. Although to me, that always seems really strange because you know, these soft skills that they talk about are things like critical thinking and the ability to write well. And to me, those things are hard skills. I mean, if you can't effectively communicate your ideas whether it's in writing or through speaking to someone else you're not getting anywhere in any discipline um, very far. And if you can't think critically and question yourself and understand whether or not you're going in the right direction and be able to do that effectively and uncomfortably, then again, I don't think you're gonna be getting very far and wherever it is that you wanna go. And I'm not saying that the liberal arts have a corner necessarily on those um, types of training or types of thinking. But I think in the long run, our students are getting more practice while they're in school with doing these kinds of things. So when they, get, when they get out, they're a little more used to doing those things.
0: Thank you, Fred. Same question, same theme.
1: Got it. Okay, yeah. First thing I want to do is second what Keen just said, in the sense that I think there are enormous number, like the data. I won't even bother to rehearse it, and you guys probably know it better than I do. But the data coming out of chambers of commerce all over the nation, and as well as tech firms and healthcare professionals, practicing physicians, and so forth, is absolutely overwhelming about the um, about the efficacy, the utility, the desirability of studying the liberal arts or having a in keeping with my, my push to make uh, our understanding of the liberal arts more a disposition, a matter of uh, uh, an attitude towards education rather than just a laundry list of things you might study. Um, uh, it seems to be, uh, the, the The... Just the data on this is overwhelming. So the question arises, how comes it that there are still people that don't get this. Now, I think there are in the audience that you identified for us in this question, I think there are people that don't get it. Um, uh, (laughs) They may be really successful. I'm not sure if I were a CEO and wanted to do new things or interesting things and make a lot of money, I'm not sure I'd hire them. Um, But, you know, I mean, you only have to go back to... Okay, so Steve Jobs, what did he study as an undergraduate? Typography. What does he say about Apple? It's where technology meets the humanities and liberal arts, okay? That, and that's a pretty good spokesman for what we're talking about here. What I would say, and I like your caveat about, you know, you didn't want us to be necessarily too, um, you can say polemical, but he's, you know, sort of too aggressive. I'm perfectly happy being aggressive. In fact, I think a big part of the problem here, I think I might model the, the problem with people not getting this as twofold. Part of it is just uh, what a sort of function of Madison Avenue or the admissions professionals that you know increasingly uh, accompany the corporatization of the modern university. In order to compete for students, you need the short line, you need the soundbite, right? So people say, "What's the liberal arts going to do for my kid's career?" And my first thing is, how long have you got? Because if you're looking for the 10-second soundbite, I don't have it. And moreover,
0: the
1: disciplines that I engage in and the education that I advocate is precisely committed to the rejection of 10-second bites in order to explain the world. The world's a lot more complicated than that. The easy questions can be dispatched that way, but nobody's interested in the easy questions. The questions that confront us that are worth solving and worth thinking about, these are hard questions and they require sophisticated tools. So, so part of me um, uh, sort of wants to get that on the table, uh, that I, I, think, I think there are a great number of people out there that are already uh, involved in these professions and these communities that recognize the importance of the liberal arts. I think there's also a problem on the part of, quite frankly, the people that practice and do the liberal arts here i'm talking about my colleagues who sometimes put my teeth on edge when i listen to them talk about this stuff because what they do is tend towards you know uh, lowest common denominator explanations which uh hue to uh you know the kind of thing that uh, keen was talking about which is soft skills they're not soft at all they're not always um entirely quantified although they are sometimes that but they're hard in all kinds of different ways uh and so uh, an important, uh, Typically, an education, and here's something we didn't get into, but I, uh, you can edit it out if this is too late in the game. Typically, uh, we've got a, a, a kind of problem in the way we approach education in this country, and you sort of began with it, Matt, in, in setting things up, in the sense that um, the, what the philosophers call the extension of a word, or the, the phenomena in the world that a term can be applied to, uh, is often quite... Uh, quite complex, quite diverse, and it is particularly so in the case of education, but two sort of main prongs uh, of uh, the way we think about uh, education is strictly sort of career preparation or vocational preparation, right? And then the other one is sort of um, what we might say is a, a soul project, a project about the development of the individual, or if you prefer an existential project, right? And typically, when I listen to my colleagues talk about the liberal arts, they haven't thought through sufficiently, because they themselves practice the liberal arts, so it's, I think, self-evident to them, and it's what they do. They haven't thought through the kind of relays that you guys seem to be wanting to excavate with this podcast, which is, don't talk to me, don't give me, like, some fuzzy account of soft skills. If you're going to be in the game of explaining how this actually helps you make money or helps you with your career, I want precise accounts of what goes on. I want... Uh, an aggressive account of how this actually works. And the examples that we've tried to give are, I think, instances of that. You're not even getting in the door for your interview if the letter that you've written doesn't bring a sensibility to life. There better be a person in those words, not just an off-the-rack persona that everybody else is. And then once you get in the room, it turns out that everybody there has also got the degree in chemie and a 4.0. So that's not doing any discriminatory work for you, right? But then they start to ask you questions and you know what, they don't give you the script for that. And if you can extemporize, if you can synthesize, right? So a hard critical skill, in agreement with Keen about this, you can synthesize, you can take disparate phenomena and connect them according to a logic and a set of causal connections. Or alternately, if you can do analytic thinking, you can take the phenomenon that they present you with and you can break it down into its component parts and say how it works. So if I wanted to give a, you know, an illustration here, that might have to do with coding. What do you, you know, what are the different components of this code and how do they uh, address the eventualities and realities of the end user on the other side of the computer screen uh, and kinds of things. So, so you might have to think about what, you know, how could this code that you've written be misinterpreted or not misinterpreted, but just alternately interpreted by people from different cultural positions, right? If a coder thought about those things, as opposed to just the shortest point between two lines in, in terms of generating code, that'd be something, Right. And in fact, the coder has to, or you got to have somebody else who comes through and does that work sort of independently. So what I would say is, I think it's really, you know, there really is a case of a false dichotomy here between that existential project and the career project. If you don't have a career, if you're not making money, you, I mean, that's <laughs> that's part of existence. That's an existential issue in and of itself. Uh, and in order to, to do good career work, Uh, you've got to be prepared in uh, non-narrow terms, and particularly for the reasons that Keem was saying, rapidly evolving um, workplace. Uh, The idea of mastering a body of content, right? Uh, What what would happen if you just thought Fortran, if you just mastered Fortran, you'd be done, right? Well, you'd be a dinosaur now, right? Okay. Uh, But if you actually mastered some things about thinking systematically about what coding is or what the relation between artificial languages and natural languages is, uh, or thinking about uh, the relationship between structuralist anthropology, or structuralist literary studies, and the actual model of ones and zeros that are in computer code that that underlie every other language um, that we talk about. Then you'd actually have a general framework for adapting when Fortran was no longer the thing, Then it became C++ or JavaScript or what have you.
0: This has been the Voice of Healthcare podcast. We'll see you next time.